This is a recording of a live Resolution Foundation event. We hope you find it some combination of interesting or entertaining. To read the research and access the event slides referenced in this episode, please visit the events section of our website. See you all and to see the left-wing economic establishment in their chairs. If you could all stop destroying, oh, we've got microphones, that's very exciting. If you could all kind of stop destroying democracy and the freedom to cut taxes left, right and centre immediately, then we'd all be a better uh, place. Now, we're not here to discuss um, that, nor are we here to discuss commiserations for those of you looking around the room Quite a few of you have been reshuffled by department over the course of today. I'm sorry, you'll get over it. You'll realise it doesn't really matter. Uh, in the long run, it's going to feel personally painful for the next few days, and then you're going to get over it. So, the, um, But, you know, that's what happens. Whatever version of Bayes, Biz, Burr, looking at Dave, whatever else happened in various phases of life, it's all... We're all a long cycle of life, people. Okay. Now, that's not what we're going to discuss. We're going to discuss much more important, bigger things... The crisis of democratic capitalism, as Martin has like relaxedly called his new and, as you will find out, you read it, final book ever. So you're, this is a big moment, people. That's it. That, that shush is, I think, fitting for what's about to happen. This is his final book because he's promised his wife he'll never write another one. And he literally just said to me as we walked down the stairs, he's never broken a promise to his wife, which cannot be true. <laughs> You can ask her. I'm going to ask her, Martin, but it cannot be true. Fortunately, she doesn't have a very good memory. <laughs> very good. Anyway, so that's what we're going to try and do. We're, going to do. we're not going to break any promises to you during the course of uh, the event, which means you're first of all going to hear from Martin, who's going to give you about a 20-minute take on the book. It's very long, so obviously he's going to miss lots of it out, so you should buy it. Fortunately, you can buy it upstairs on the way out with a £5 discount to fight inflation. So do that. Then you're going to hear from... Uh, Neri Woods is kindly joining us, who you all know anyway, but runs the Blavatnik uh, Centre at Oxford and has millions of other things and hasn't written her last book. Or at least hasn't promised to have written her last book. So we'll be able to launch that here uh, soon. And then we're going to take questions from you all in the room and those of you online. If you go onto Slido, you can do it at hashtag uh, democratic capitalism the, um, uh, and put it, them in there. And then we're going to have a discussion. We're going to talk a bit about... Martin's diagnosis of the problem, it's a crisis, it's a crisis of democratic capitalism, but exactly what is it? And then a bit about what the approach to the answer should be, and then let's get into the nuts and bolts of what the actual answer should be. Then clearly we have a bias about what Britain should do, but we're going to try and touch on the bigger picture of what democratic liberal democracy should do around the world. And we're going to see if by the end of it we can perk Martin up. We're not going to succeed but we're going to try. And I've got some charts to perk him up in case your questions aren't very perky, because I'm looking around the room and there's quite a few depressives in here uh, as well. So we're going to get some perky at the end. That is the plan. You've all polished off the booze upstairs, so you lot must be pretty perky. All right, Martin, what's in the book? Over to you. Okay. So, thank, first of all, thank you all for coming. Um, I've already reached, after a week of this, almost total exhaustion as a result of combining launching this book with doing my columns. So I can only hope I'm at least modestly coherent. But I start off with a text which helps. Um, so I'm going to start off uh, with um, a quotation which uh, I came across in the middle of writing this book, but I should have known it anyway. Um, and it goes as follows. 
it is clear then that the best partnership in a state is the one which operates through the middle people, the middle class in other words, and also that those states in which the middle element is large and stronger if possible than the other two together, by which the author meant the rich and the extremely poor, or at any rate stronger than either of them alone, has every chance of having a, have every chance of having a well-run democratic constitution. And this, I think, rather brilliant perception is Aristotle. So pretty well at the beginning of all our thinking about politics. Um, well, the two most important books ever written on politics were obviously Plato's Republic and Aristotle's Politics. Um, and the second quotation, which is in a way a motto for my book and maybe a motto for me, uh, it comes from the Temple of Apollo at Delphi, and it's Medenagan, which means never too much. And yes, I did read classics at Oxford. Now, um, before I pretended to be an economist, in 1937, my father left Vienna for England on his own. His immediate family managed by a miracle to escape to Palestine in 1939. Their wider family was left in Poland and with the exception of one young woman died in the Holocaust. In May 1940, my mother's father, a self-made Jewish fish merchant, hijacked a trawler in order to take his family to England as German armies poured across the Dutch frontier. He was one of nine. He asked all his brothers and sisters to join him with their families. None came. Their families also all died in the, in the Holocaust. I'm not certain of the numbers, but somewhere between 40 and 50 of my, uh, of my parents, aunts, uncles and cousins were killed. And this was, of course, the result of the collapse of civilization in the interwar years in Europe. There were many reasons for this. But as I argue in the book, there's very little doubt that one of them was the Great Depression and its impact. And that, in fact, was one of the reasons why I first became interested in economics. And this is why the theme of this book, which I began as Donald Trump became president of the US and something called the Brexit campaign seized this country, matters so much to me. One must never assume the stability of a civilized state. So I'm going to start by talking about where I begin, something called the democratic recession, which is a term invented by Larry Diamond in something he wrote about 15 years ago. And Larry Diamond at Stanford is probably the world's leading scholar of democratic systems. In a liberal democracy, that is a democracy characterized by civil rights, the rule of law, and respect for both the rights of the losers and the legitimacy of the winners, fair elections must determine who holds power. Attempts by a head of government and state to subvert the election or overturn the vote are quite simply treason. Yet that is precisely what Trump, of course, attempted to do both before and after the presidential election of two years ago. He failed, decent and brave people ensure that, but to this day, despite the midterms, Trump has continued to hold the loyalty of his party's base. It is extremely likely, not certain by any means, that he will be the next candidate, and it's quite possible 
that his successor, if it's not him, could be even worse because a far more ruthless and organized would-be autocrat. Trump is, alas, not alone, at least not in the world, though America is in a very special position among the major democracies. Freedom in the World 2021, from the independent US watchdog Freedom House, published in uh, February, reported a 16th consecutive year of decline in the health of liberal democracy. That was last year. The democratic recession, noted by Larry Diamond, as I've mentioned, is in some ways close to a democratic depression. So it's been 15 years of decline. This decline has occurred in all regions of the world, notably in the democracies that emerged after the Cold War and in many developing countries. But most significantly, it is also observable in core Western democracies and above all in the US. So let me just start with my presentation and I'll ignore the book and I've given you the quotes. So let me just go to the first quote. Oh, sorry, I apologize. I don't know why I got there. There we are. This is uh, Freedom House's relatively recent evaluation of the quality of democracy with 100 indicating something close to perfection. And it is striking now how low the evaluation of the US is and how much markedly lower it is than any other significant developed country. I'm sure I really don't need to say how important the US has been and remains in protecting and preserving democracy worldwide. I don't think it's possible to exaggerate. Just look what's going on at the moment to our east. Now let me move from the democratic recession to the origins of democratic capitalism. According to the Polity 4 database, whose results I'm going to touch on very soon, there were no democracies as they define it uh, two centuries ago. That is, government states with reasonably wide franchises, obviously not universal, um, in which elections played a central part in determining who held power. Even where Republican institutions did exist, the franchise was highly restricted, of course, on the grounds of sex, race, and wealth. In the US, for example, which I cite, in 1800, the proportion of the adult population with a vote was about 6%. Um, it's obviously lower here. Uh, won't even go into the rotten boroughs and all the rest of it. Then in the 19th century, franchises were widened and universal suffrage democracy emerged and spread in fits and starts. It covered most of the high, that system covered most of the high income countries by about 100 years ago. Well, in Britain, it reached universality for people over 21 in 1930, as I'm sure you all know. Um, and it reached a peak of half of the world's countries in uh, 2010, which is as far as this database unfortunately goes. I haven't been able to get an update of it. So the brown line here, which can be read off the left, the scale is on the left, shows the proportion of the world's countries that were defined as democratic, starting in 1870 and ending, as I said, in 2010. 
And you can see there was a big, remember, of course, the number of countries increased dramatically over time, particularly in the last 70 years, because of the, this, this was still the age of empires. I don't go into that. So the proportion of democracies among the countries that were independent rose from 10% on their definition to 40% by 1920, immediately after the war, the First World War. There was then a staggering collapse with the Soviet Revolution and the rise of the fascist states and fascist empires in Europe to reach a trough of not much over 10%, almost back to where they were in 1870. After the war, there was a rise. Most of that was reversed. Then stasis in the bipolar world and then a huge rise as the Soviet empire collapsed to reach a peak of just over 50%. That left an awful lot of authoritarian and anarchic regimes, by the way. Now, the other set of lines, and this is just for fun, I'm not trying to imply profound causality, but I think it's interesting, shows the ratio of world trade to GDP, which is the best indicator of economic openness and the progress of the market I can think of. That correlated moderately well prior to 1910 uh, with the rise in democracy. It correlates depressingly well with the collapse of, into autocracy as the, um, as the world economy closed and the Great Depression hit. And afterwards, it after the war, particularly after 1980, it correlates remarkably well with subsequent optimism. If you look at more recent data, which I can't show you here, the decline in, in globalization and the decline in democracy, again, seems to match really remarkably well. So why were, over this period, from 1900 to nowadays, roughly, why were democratic principles accepted by so many countries? After all, as we know, the normal way to structure the economies and politics of of moderately complex societies, that is, since the agrarian revolution started creating states, which are recognizable states, has been quite simply for power to marry wealth and wealth to marry power. In other words, the most powerful people in society were the richest and vice versa. And as the writing of Walter Scheidel, among others, shows, these societies were basically about as unequal as it was possible for them to be. And that was true pretty well of every empire you've ever thought of. Um, the explanation of this trans, trans, transformation lies, I argue, with the emergence of a marriage between those ostensibly very different partners, a liberal economy and a democratic polity. Market capitalism and democracy, I argue, are complementary opposites. They, they do share some one very profound value which is they reject ascribed as hereditary status. They are anti-aristocratic systems of, of economic organization and also of political organization. Market capitalism, of course, rests on ideals of free labor, very important in the Civil War in the US, by the way, that idea. Individual effort, reward for merit, and of course, is based on the rule of law. Democracy rests on ideals of free discussion and debate among citizens in making the law. Historically, the market economy 
also transformed economies profoundly, bringing urbanization, an increased demand for an educated workforce, a new organized working class as a powerful political force, and the political institutions that created. And these were transformative developments in economies which have profound political consequences in the conflicts, social and economic, of the late 19th and 20, early 20th centuries. And my conclusion then, and in the complementary size, is that markets protect democratic politics from an excessive concentration of political power in the state, and democratic politics protects markets from an excessive concentration of market power in the wealthy. This then is how these two systems are complementary. But they are also in conflict. Capitalism is inherently cosmopolitan, there are no borders for uh, economic opportunity for the market. The democratic state is inherently territorial. The market is the domain of exit, in Hirschman's famous phrase, uh, uh, democracy is the domain of voice. The market economy is, of course, inegalitarian. It's one dollar, one vote, very simply, or one pound, one vote. Democracy is, at least in principle, egalitarian. One person, one vote. Tensions will do and have emerged. If the economy fails to serve the interests of the majority, I argue the sense of shared citizenship will fray and populist demagogues are almost bound to arise. Populism is not necessarily lethal for democracy so long as it takes the form of a justified, often fruitful hostility to corrupt and inefficient elites. But often it turns into hostility to pluralism an essential element in any true democracy. In other words, populism takes the form of saying, we are the true people and nobody else is. I discussed that at great length. Democracy, they may be transformed into a plebiscitary dictatorship and ultimately dictatorship to core. Alternatively, the concentration of wealth in the market may lead to outright plutocracy as wealth is once again transmuted into power. So what has gone wrong in today's democracies? I argue very briefly that rises in inequality and the deteriorating prospects of the old respectable working and middle classes in core democracies have played a crucial role in breaking the foundations of democracy and its legitimacy as practice. The fear of downward mobility has created status anxiety and political cynicism these have been diverted by skilled propagandists of many different kinds into cultural and racial resentment. The emergence of the new media, in my view, have facilitated these trends, but they did not create them. I have quite a bit on that. A big question is what hap has happened to create this status anxiety. It's particularly in people who do not go to college who have shifted to, to supporting the populist right. And that's pretty well universal across our societies um, in every one. Look at Sweden, for God's sake. In the long run, the important phenomena, I argue, have been economic or crucial. Deindustrialization, rising inequality and falling productivity growth. And in the short run, a crucial role has been played by the financial crisis and its aftermath. And let me just give you a few, very few of the 50 odd charts in my book, uh, which, uh, sorry, 
what's going on, which indicate this. So this is, I think, well, it was, to me it was interesting. I didn't realize it. This shows the share of industry in civilian employment, and I ranked it by the percentage point share of decline in the share between 1970 and 2019 for the group of seven plus Spain. And the red column is, of course, 1970, and the, the dark blue is 2019. The biggest decline is the UK. Uh, the US has also had a very significant decline, and this is really important to note because it relates to the trade issue. Germany has also had a very large decline, of course, from a very high level um, because of its large export sector. But deindustrialization has been perverse, pervasive, and it has, in fact, obviously has, I don't think it was avoidable, a profound economic and social consequence. And in the US and UK, I'm not going to show you this, are also the most unequal of the big high-income de democracies, according to the OECD, and they have had some of its most potent populist politics. I don't believe this is an accident. But another thing that has happened is captured in here, which is, in a way, the most troublesome, if you think that prosperity is an essential part of the modern bargain of democracy. This shows the decadal average growth rate of output per hour by each decade going from the 1950s to the 2010s. And you can see we haven't been doing very well recently. And by the way, as I pointed out to Torsten a long time ago, but I probably knew it already, didn't he? Because Torsten basically knows everything. Um, the UK is in terrible shape on this. Basically, it looks like Italy. Uh, but the US isn't great either, by the way. Uh, um, the last decade was really miserable. Rajan, Raghuram Rajan, in his wonderful book on all this, uh, uh, written quite a long time ago, argued that easy credit papered over many of these trends. People could borrow a lot. But that blew up in the financial crisis. The scale and visibility of the crisis and subsequent rescue of the banks and bankers convinced many people, and this is particularly important in the US, that the elite, financial, and the economic and political, was not only corrupt, but seriously incompetent. A financial crisis is, I think, a devastating event. And Alan Taylor and other economists have written together some wonderful work on the, that a major financial crisis is almost always a, har harbors, a, a harbinger of a serious political upset. And the last financial crisis was a very big financial crisis, the biggest since the 30s. On this, and I think this is my, I've got one more chart, and I'm breaking all the time rules as usual. So this is my favorite chart in, on this, um, and it's about the aftermath of the financial crisis. So for each of these countries, which are basically the same countries, I've worked out what GDP, how GDP per head developed since 2007 relative to what it would have been if the pre-crisis trends of 1990 to 2007 had continued. Um, our our pre-crisis growth was relatively good, so that explains why we're so bad. But we're down with Spain, right at the bottom. Uh, it's not surprising people feel poor, because actually GDP per head is more than 30% lower than it would have been if the pre-crisis trends had continued, and that's a lot. Uh, 
Germany is the least bad, which is consistent with its performance, but its pre-crisis growth was relatively modest. That explains also Japan, where it was also uh, modest. But we've done much worse than France uh, or the US. And I think that this perception that the people in charge were not, of the conservative parties, were not respectable, but that the, the, there was an increasing sense that the left to center parties weren't uh, really their sort of party either, that so many working people responded to the appeal of right-wing populists from the conservative side. And that's the core of Trump's appeal and why he was the successful candidate and Romney hadn't been. Not very successful, but successful enough. The shift towards skill-intensive sectors and technologies, deindustrialization of the labor force, globalization, and the rise of China were, of course, the product of powerful economic forces. These could not have been prevented. But there is also, and I got lots of material, substantial evidence of the emergence of what I call rontier capitalism, with declining competition, rising monopoly, therefore an unbridled self-seeking by corporate insiders. Furthermore, the role of money in politics, especially in the US, has eroded the tax base and the effectiveness of regulation. It's really little wonder, I think, that people are so cynical about democratic politics today. So, demo finally, getting to the end, democratic capitalism in today's world. Branko Milanovic, in his important book on all this, argues that capitalism is now alone. It has won. No other credible system for organizing production and exchange in a complex modern economy now exists. But we should ask what sort of capitalism has won. Is it liberal capitalism or what I call democratic capitalism or is it going to be authoritarian capitalism? Now, one form of authoritarian capitalism doesn't worry me much. It's simply one in which the would-be autocrat starts out as a populist demagogue and eats out democracy from within. It does worry me in the sense it could happen to any of our countries at some point, but it doesn't worry me in the sense that I don't think it's going to work very well. What really is a serious challenger is what I call bureaucratic authoritarian capitalism or just communism. Com modern communism operating on Chinese lines seems to work remarkably well or has done so far. But even so, this form of capitalism also suffers from the vices of authoritarianism, especially the tendency towards corruption and crony capitalism. And I believe, though I can't go into any further, there are some very, very big problems in the Chinese system too. So it's not at all obvious, I think, that we're going to do worse than them if we manage to restore the essence of our system. And the renewal of our system must, in my view, be animated by the simple and powerful idea of shared citizenship. If democracy is to work, we cannot just think of ourselves as individuals. We must think as citizens. And today, citizenship in these challenging times must have three aspects. Loyalty to democratic political and legal institutions and the values of open debate and mutual tolerance that underpin them concern for the ability of fellow citizens to live a fulfilled life and the desire to create an economy that allows citizens to flourish. This book is my small contribution to those ends. Thank you. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much indeed, um, uh, Martin. If you're going to write a last book, this is a good one uh, on a rather big topic to have done. Mary, over to you. Thank you, and thank you, Martin, for the book, for the presentation. Um, Martin asks, he actually asked me tonight to begin with the international dimension. And I will come to it. But I think that the reason it's not frontline and central in your book, Martin, and you can correct me as we go along, is perhaps because you share with me the view that the central problems that dem democracy and capitalism face are within our own polities and societies. They're not within the globe, much as it might be tempting for governments to say it's because of China, Russia, and geopolitical rivalry. Actually, the problems are at home. And I think that comes through very powerfully in the book, which, which, as Martin has shown, asks us, how did we get to here from democratic capitalism to what, at points in the book you describe, as predatory capitalism and demagogic politics. And I guess what I'd like to do is just to talk about, uh, to, to pick up on some of the things that Martin's fantastic book points to as ways out of here. What are some of the necessary things that have to change in order for us to emerge? Because what I found really interesting about the book is that yes, there are the forces, um, globalization, etc. But actually there's, there's a sense in so many of the pages, a reminder of the agency of people, the people in this room, the people in boardrooms, the people in Whitehall, the people in Westminster, and what it is that those people need to be doing. And very simply put, and I just took some simple kind of triads from, from the book, you know, what is it that business needs to do if capitalism is not going to be predatory? And the three headlines I took from the book are first, business actually has to respect the rules that make the market and not rig the rules, not play fancily with the rules and say, providing I get away with it, it's okay, but to take responsibility for upholding the rules of the market. Second, not to inflict harm on the environment or on societies within which they work. Just because they might legally get away with it doesn't mean it's okay. Um, and third, pay their taxes. So three pretty straightforward um, rules or pr three pretty straightforward directions to every boardroom and every CEO in the country about how we move from predatory capitalism to a capitalism that can coexist with and strengthen democracy. And then he moves to the elites, the, the people in this room, the people he thinks influence the political system. And I think I, I would add to it that the sort of individual politicians themselves. You know, I sit as dean of a, a school of government and I find myself saying to each incoming group of future politicians, some of whom are already politicians, that all over the world, politicians and the elite are seen by so many as self-serving, corrupt and unfair and incompetent. And if we, if we flip that the other way, what we're saying is that those with privilege and those with political power need to act first in the common public purpose. It's a simple thing to say, 
but it's a good standard against which to adjudicate every one of our actions and every one of their actions. Second, they need to act with fairness and integrity, so the opposite of corruption and self-dealing, uh, which we see so much of. And, and, and third, competence to me is knowing what you don't know. And we live in a world where there are too many politicians and too many of those shaping both the economic and political system who aren't reaching out to find out what they don't know, who aren't reaching out, for example, to find out with their th whether their theoretical, the theoretical effect of their brilliant tweak of welfare policy is actually going to produce the outcome they're proclaiming it will. So, so business, three rules for business, the elite, political, intellectual, three rules for them, a, a, a public mission, f acting with fairness rather than corruption, and knowing, being more careful of knowing what they don't know. And then it seems to me three directions to government itself, which I thought were brilliantly clear, providing equal opportunity to the extent that a government can, and looking after those that, that, that can't avail themselves of that. Legal predictability, not fancy tweaks and changes with every year and every new minister, which in this country would be three monthly, but you know, re understanding the duty to provide the legal stability that enables others to do long-term powerful positive things. And the third was providing and ensuring that the necessary physical and social infrastructure exists, both for democracy and for the economy. And here, I guess what I would add to what Martin tells us in the book and what I would add a lot more on, and if we could persuade Martin to do another book and make peace with Alison, then maybe, is that if we think about the physical and social infrastructure, which is necessary for a 21st century economy, it's a lot about digital platforms. And if we ask ourselves who controls the digital platforms that our economic future depends upon, the answer is not people in the public sphere or people who have public accountability for who has access and who's included or not and what the returns to, to, to different to, to owners and workers actually are. And so I think there is a real need for us all to think really hard about what a public digital infrastructure could and should look like. And, and certainly I know we're, we're beginning to think about that in the school and I think it's important. And then finally, the solution that, that, that Martin finished his remarks tonight about citizenship and what binds people. People are bound together with their family ties, with their business ties, with ties of interest and ties of religion, etc. And Martin says, if we want to save democracy, we have to ensure that the ties that bind people over and above those are really strong. And you make the case, um, as you said, that this is about loyalty to political institutions, concern for other citizens, etc. And you make the case for patriotism as that um, bond. And I think that that case sits um, overwhelmed by, the, by what technology has done with communications. 
And, and the, the point I want to make about this is a very simple one. That human beings have intentions and Martin's recommendations are all about the way we point our intentions, our intention to do the right thing, our intention to inform ourselves so that we can be good citizens and good business people, for example. But the tsunami that has hit all of us in the last decade is the tsunami that has wiped away most of our intentions and replaced it with a constant feeding to our attention. And the difference between what harvests our attention and what we have as our intentions, for me, was beautifully depicted by the politician who got up and said, proving that he really didn't understand that algorithms existed and that his TikTok is very different to my TikTok, perhaps believing that we all look at the same TikTok. He said, I can't understand why anyone's looking at TikTok. It's all naked teenage girls. <laughs> and, you know, so what he was telling us is that this, whether he wants it to or not, is what draws his attention to it. No, it's a perfect example that his attention is drawn to that and drawn so much that the algorithm is picking it up and feeding him just that. His intention, which is presumably why he got up to make this comment, is that is not to spend his time with what it is that's simply drawing his attention. And that tsunami, I just don't think we can um, overestimate. I think everything in this magnificent book results from people acting on their intentions and people informing themselves in an intentional way. And nowhere is that clearer than in the question of identity. And we're living with the results of a harvesting of people's attention. Because as every psychologist uh, colleague of mine in Oxford um, gives me evidence of, it's fear. It's fear, hate and violence that are the stickiest on our attention. And if our communication, and now it's more than three quarters of people who are relying on social media for their news, which is not a free speech space, it's an algorithmically driven space, feeding and overfeeding our attention. And that to me is the real challenge to the proposals for how we can rectify democracy and the economy um, in Martin's book. Um, on the Finally, on the international, I think where Martin and I probably agree is that this should not distract us from the huge problems that are within our grasp and our grip within every democracy and every open capitalist economy in the world. That these are problems that have to be solved at home. And there are also problems that we cannot solve without cooperation with other countries. And for that reason, we have to be using the international institutions, which Martin and I and many people in this room know so well, to create minimal rules of the road and to, and to foster cooperation. I think the big temptation, and this might well be an area on which Martin and I disagree, the great temptation in a world where the geostrategic rivalry and Russia's invasion of Ukraine has quickly splintered the world, is to make friends with those we like and we think we share values with alone, to create coalitions of the willing, to work just with the G7, for example, 
on sanctions regimes or on new international rules of the road. And that, to me, is a temptation that needs resisting. And it needs resisting first because it's not effective. We've seen in sanctions, for economic sanctions to be effective, you need the largest possible number of countries participating. Why those countries didn't participate? You know, one reason, as put to the chair of the American House Foreign Affairs Committee, when he went and asked ambassadors in the Security Council, why didn't you join us? They said, now you're coming to talk to us. This is the first time you've consulted us. So first, it, just, it leads you away from exactly the consultation you need in order to forge a better international set of the rules. Second, you don't have the information. Um, only really taking into account afterwards that in the last eight years, African countries have come to depend for more than 50% of their defense and security expenditures on average across the continent on Russia, and more than 50% of their debt or their, their loans and investment from China. That has to figure into a calculation that says, we want you overnight to take a step that could cut you off from those countries. It's not, this is not, this is not to say that the desire to uphold the sovereignty of Ukraine is wrong. It's absolutely right. It's to say that the way in which we build international rules and international coalitions really matters. And the trap of the coalition of the willing, the easy agreement, the one telephone call with the people that you most are most comfortable agreeing with is, is likely to take us backwards. Not just on that issue, but on the other big issues on which we need global agreement, climate change, uh, a resolution of the debt crisis, which is starting to spill across uh, developing countries at, at a speedy rate, um, you know, and, and so many other problems. So on, on the international, I think, um, yeah, I'll, I'll leave it there and leave the rest for, for, for questions. But let me end by just saying thank you, Martin, for a tr terrific book that goes from the systemic and the charts in the book to human agency and a set of solutions that lie in changed behaviors, changed goals, changed aspirations of public leaders and private sector leaders and civil society leaders across the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much in, indeed. Any aspiring politicians have learned that they will find it stressful if they come to the Blavatnik School because you will start their very first talk by telling them how everyone hates them, but also important because otherwise they will make TikTok related speeches <laughs> that will end in tears. So they should still go and get their education, even if they're going to get a painful uh, awakening. Right. Now, um, there's lots of good questions coming in. As I said, hands up or democratic capitalism is the hashtag. We're going to, so you know when to aim your hands, those of you already getting keen, we're basically going to, uh, let's try to keep this under some kind of order. So we're going to do Martin's diagnosis of the problem. Then we're going to do what I would call the mezzanine approach to solving it. So that's like the approach, not the weeds of the policies. I know you will want to talk about land value tax. I'm looking at whoever's asking all the questions. But we're going to come to that. But for, before we go to the weeds, we're going to force everyone to discuss the how do we try to deal with the problem big picture. Then we will do some weeds, I promise. Uh, and then we will finish. That is the plan. So you've got to kind of aim your hands for exactly the right part of that. If you get it wrong, this is a low risk environment. It's high trust in here. It will be forgiven. 
So why don't we, I thought we should start out on, so the, the fact there's loads of charts in your book is not at all surprising, okay? And there's lots of books about um, the disaster that is kind of modern capitalism, particularly in Britain, which have charts of things getting worse. The interesting bit that comes past is you're, you're highlighting your um, classical training, but the interesting bit is at one level telling us why we should care about democracy and about capitalism so much. We should really care in a way. Now, we all care that we've got a bit poorer, but your argument is we should really care about what is at stake. So I thought we should dwell a bit on that. And in particular, why democracy and liberal capitalism are so important because you can lose safely. You can lose, well, people can lose either without blowing up the system. So wh why do you care more than everybody else writing their books saying we haven't had any growth and it's a bit suboptimal? Well, I suppose, well, my answer to that will be that I fear, I hope I'm wrong, but I want to alarm people, that there may be more at stake than just whether, just, whether people end up poorer than they hoped. And, uh, and uh, so let me give perhaps different ways of looking at the same thing. If this goes badly, let's, let me, I don't do this in the book, so let's just look at the UK. Um, there seems to me uh, a non-zero danger, how big it is I don't know, but it's definitely non-zero, that we're going to fall into a Latin American cycle. And the Latin American cycle, and I've worked a bit part of this, looks like this. You've got, you start out with a pretty weak economy, which isn't generating much prosperity. I've got that. You people are very unhappy, and the society is quite divided on class, cultural, and um, other lines with very severe distrust across these lines. And both the left and the right tends uh, to be periodically and often altogether populist in the sense that, and I mean this in a relatively precise sense, they take anti-elite policy lines in which they basically say, we have these terrible problems, it's all because of those crooks over there, trust me and put me in, I will find all the money there is to give you guys, and the problems will just go away because I'm there. And that sort of, obviously that fails, things blow up, you get hyperinflation, whatever, I'm not saying we're going to go there. And then he, this person is replaced by someone on the opposite side, obviously sometimes actually with a coup, but just somebody on the opposite side. So you move, and by the way, I'm not trying to make this comparison, but take the most horrifying example of this in the most important country, the Lula, Lula to Bolsonaro swing. Um, won't be very surprised that I'm on the side of Lula here. That's not the point. The point is neither of them could actually deliver anything that made this incredibly important resource-rich country function. And what happens as a result is that basically everybody in the country is totally disillusioned about all political activities. And once that starts, self-selection ensures people go into politics increasingly are crooks. 
and everybody believes they're crooked. And once you get to this situation, democracy can't function because nobody actually believes it can make any difference. Now, that's the, the what I think of as the popular cycle if it's allowed to extend very far. And I don't think, and this is why the Biden administration is so important, and what they're trying to do is so important, I don't think the US is all that far from this. I mean, Mutatis Mutandis in the politics, of course, incredibly wealthy, enormous resources, blah, blah, blah. But politically, I think they're there. Now, once you're there, it becomes very difficult to run a democracy decently. And it actually becomes pretty difficult to run a market economy decently either, because there's endless short-term messy interference of all kinds by people in power. And the, the great corruption scandal Brazil is a beautiful example. So that's what you want to avoid. And Neri talked about a few of the aspects of that, and I just talked about a lot of other ones. It, I think this isn't very difficult to get to. And by the way, the first person who basically described exactly this sort of cycle with precision remarkably so, is Plato in the Republic. And Plato, of course, was a cynical conservative and said, well, that just shows what you get if you start a democracy. Since I want democracy to function, that is not the moral lesson I wish to draw. But I do think the key point is there is a very great tendency, complacency, particularly in Britain, because we played this game for so long, so well, to assume that nothing like this can happen here. And I'm afraid, and I'm not comparing us to the US, but the last six years looks a hell of a lot sort of like this to me. Can I, can I ask No, so that's why it frightens me. I'm not saying 20 years from now, it, it may take 20 years, 30 years, I have no idea, it could be next week. But I think this is a much less stable set of arrangements now here than I would have ever expect it. So basically tail risks are big and less tailed. Tails risks look quite fat to me for quite a number. I won't go into France, which I think is also yep. Italy. Uh, Germany looks fine uh, 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 at the moment, but a number of our countries don't look too, too solid to me. And what's good is that in the first answer, we got the word coup, which I didn't see coming. But, you know, I, I was thinking about 1990s and the, 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 the big hope that democratization across all other parts of the world would go on a kind of linear transition towards yeah, our best vision of our own democracy. And of course, it fails. And I, you know, I was last year I was speaking to the president of one of those newly democratizing countries then. And it goes to Martin's point about democracy being hollowed out. And I, we were talking about his agenda and he laughed and he said, you don't seem to understand that most of the ministers in my cabinet know that it's their turn to eat. Where, where ele what an election does is provide a group of politicians with their turn to eat. And what Martin is saying is that if that's become the case in this country and in other kind of Western democracies, that that's extremely dangerous. If we think about what it means to think it's your turn to eat, to upturn every part of the institution, to upturn the rules, to upturn the institutions which limit your discretion, then, then we are in a, you know, we are in a, but my question, Martin, was, you know, what changed in 1990 for our democracies is the threat of a different system. And, and I just wonder how, like, to me, that's very important because what, what 
catalyzed the kind of social democracy that you describe in your book in 46, 47 was not a fear of Soviet invasion, but a fear of our own citizens voting for communist parties at home. So it was a fear of change within. And, and you could say that kept democratic governments sort of honest in respect to most of their population till 1990. But once the Cold War ended, they didn't have to deliver anymore to their masses. But I think, though, that the, the I think that I should have probably written more about that, but the book is big enough already, mm -hmm. but uh, far too big. But the I think that the erosion was beginning earlier. Uh, I didn't think that at the time, but, but I don't want to go into all that stuff, uh, Thatcher, Reagan, and so forth. But I think the uh, it is clearly true that the existence of a credible alternative option for the citizens, which might take undermine the position of existing elites, is is uh, an important threat. But the truth is, and this is why I ended up on these alternatives. I don't think very many people in our country think as they get up in the morning, I'd like to live in China. Mm. And, and, but some of them think, this is not a joke, that it would be rather nice to live in Hungary. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's a large part of what's going on in the American right right now. I mean, I'm not saying dominant, but it, not insignificant. I mean, you know, Mr. Orban, that's the right way to rule. There are a lot of people who think that. They, let's be quite blunt. On Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, what Marine Le Pen thinks, uh, except she admires Putin, and she could very easily be the next president of France. So the um, this is that's that's where the attraction of a foreign system is coming. And what's so strange is that the sort of system they're finding attractive is just such a vulgar horror. Now. Uh, We've derailed you, Torsten. I've, I've completely lost control. You see, so, as usual, Torsten. As usual, right. The, um, I'm definitely not enough of a control. But we, get, we I answered your well, lovely question. You did, question. you did. So you're getting another question now, which is basically, you, so the book is basically, oh, this is, it's a, there's a lot of words in the book, right? But big picture, we're basically saying economic failure, gives you the politics problem. Now, obviously, you're not, I don't want to caricature your position. You give some weight to the cultural arguments, but you basically tell everybody that's written the cultural explanations since the financial crash as the drivers of populism that they're wrong, politely, or less politely, but broadly. The, um, so it basically goes, economic problem has, causes you a problem for global capitalism and then gives you your problem for um, uh, democracy. So it, you, you're a good Marxist in that sense. Yep. Well, Marx was the greatest social scientist that's ever lived. If only he'd steered clear of prophecy. Okay, I'm coming back to your lefty turn in a second. So you've given us ammunition there. But there, but on the like, I've always so been the, a Marxist. I've always been a good Marxist. But the counter, you can't be an intelligent social scientist if you're not a Marxist. Okay. it seems to me. The, um, uh, For God's sake. <laughs> right. I'm sorry. Uh, okay. Th this is why. You see, this trust is right. Look at you. Uh, now, now, look, you've totally... No, but there aren't that many people that are so powerfully influenced by Burke and Marx at the same time. That's true. I don't think. That's true. That's anyway, right. the question... Why not? The question <laughs> is... The, Why not? The counter-argument to your book is, stop drawing your charts. Uh, there are a load of cultural explanations for how we've got here to do with tied-up people's... to do with 
people's views on race, people's views on their status in society, their views towards migration. That's the most important thing. Stop drawing your charts. Um, well, my argument against this uh, is um, I think there's no doubt that change, I mean, I do discuss this some length. Obviously, the changes I talk about, which are economic, uh, are also profoundly social and cultural. So, um, to take an example, deindustrialization um, had devastating effects on communities and people. Uh, you know where they are in this country. Uh, and they changed the ways of life of people profoundly and made a lot of people feel uh, not just economically but inevitably culturally insecure. This coincided with other things that tended to make them feel insecure, mm -hmm. some of which are also at least semi-economic, um, many of which I think are highly desirable. But obviously we had a massive shift in the class structure with, a, with moving to a society in which 50% of people go to university. I think it's impossible to exaggerate how significant that is. It's an economic and a cultural shift. Obviously, immigration is a very large issue. It clearly was a central issue in the Brexit campaign. But if you look at all those issues together, you find that they've tended to become acute just as the issue of my god we hate the jews became acute after the great depression that is to, and this is where alan taylor's work comes in so well when the whole economic system starts falling apart which is basically everybody's livelihoods their security their day-to-day -day sense of how things work then they start getting frightened and then, or even more frightened, and then they start looking to politicians who tell them successfully that, well, this is all because of these bad people who are doing terrible things to you, the people who love the EU or, the, or immigrants or whatever it might be, uh, the whole thing. And the best example of that in history, I mean, it's extreme, but I've got lots of others, I've got lots of examples of these coincidence of economic change with who voted for Brexit and so forth. But the best example in history, of course, is the, the Nazi vote in 1930 and 1933. It was two completely different votes uh, with exactly the same political platform and nobody paid any attention to it before the Great Depression and three years later with 25% unemployment, they voted for Hitler. They actually, only a third of them, but still enough. So it's impossible to separate them, but more crucially, I believe really big economic events like a financial crisis are trigger events in the sense that they change the way people look at the world and they start to, starts to make them think, actually, that was all wrong, and everything else these, these outsiders are saying is probably right too. On that topic, so first question from the audience. The, um, uh, should we just lock all the bankers up? This is phrased more politely in the question. But yes. broadly... Yes, that's one of my... I, I, I think that on the Voltairean principle, pour encourager les autres, I have a discussion of this. The only country that locked the bankers up yep. was Iceland. And they really did. 
And they're completely clear, socially and politically and economically. I don't discuss that, I should have. But basically, when something like that happens, you need to put a few people in prison. Okay, very good. And the Americans used to. This was the first time in a, something, it's very big contrast, which I still don't understand, between what they did after uh, the dot-com bubble burst with what they did after the, the banking crash, though the banking crash was orders of magnitude worse. After the dot-com bubble burst, they, they, uh, they put lots of people in prison. They didn't put any of them. Because, to, to use the famous quote that was made, they were too big to jail. And that was actually the reason. I know that was the reason. They thought it was going to be devastating for confidence in the financial sector. Yeah. Right, last big question on this cause problem. Which is, so you, at the beginning, you make a big virtue of having changed your mind. I'm going to come back to Tony Blair in this context later, but um, uh, about a big virtue of changing your mind. On the problem, no. before we come, no, wait a second, on the problem, you can't quite, I haven't said the question yet, you can't quite, on the problem <laughs> statement, is a, a fair caricature of your position that when you was a youth, the thing that made you fearful along the existential lines you're saying tonight was left populism? And what has changed is that the problem now is right populism. No, the uh, the so the, the since I'm so very old, okay. uh, it would be accurate to say that I have moved from being a uh, uh, a Gateskillite, which is how I started back in the. Does anyone here remember who Hugh Gates School was? You're all very educated. Some of you are almost as old as I am, uh, or possibly older. So yeah, I was a Gateskillite, and I joined the Young Socialists, and I absolutely hated the 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 left socialists I was constantly debating with uh, in the. Uh, in the uh, 80s, I would have considered myself a relatively liberal conservative, but I never joined the, any party. Uh, and the, uh, but it's certainly true that until the 1980s, I was uh, somebody who felt um, that the Cold War was a real thing and that I really didn't like the Soviets and the Soviet system very much. And that was certainly the most important thing. Yeah. So I was always a profoundly anti-totalitarian, mm -hmm. but right-wing authoritarianism and right-wing totalitarianism did not seem to me in the 50s, 60s and 70s a living threat. It was a historic threat, uh, with which I was very aware, but left-wing, uh, uh, totalitarianism was very, very living until the Soviet Union collapsed and before China became what it is. And I don't think China's in the same category. So I think my basic attitudes have not changed that much, except, and I absolutely admit it, I'm significantly more concerned about how the market can play. I'm more Adam Smithian in this sense than I used to be, uh, that the rigging markets is just what capitalists do and you have to watch them very, very carefully. I was not aware of that enough 30 years ago, particularly in finance, but the, oh, and in tech, by the way, which I do write about. But I do think that we have seen a return of right-wing authoritarianism as a real living force in our societies. Of course, it's not like the 30s. Of course, it isn't. But it has echoes. And I didn't expect that. And right now, in most of our societies, with very few exceptions, right-wing authoritarianism seems a much greater living force 
uh, with you know with the all that goes with it than left wing the left wing version. So I'm opposed to what's going on now. Peter. Thank you. Uh, Peter Kellner. Uh, one ah. long ago, YouGov. I'm also fellow son of an Austrian who left Vienna in the late 30s for roughly the same reason. Um, over the last 50, 60 years, um, different countries have been offered as models for big solutions to big problems. You know, Japan and industry in the 80s, yeah. Germans, poli Germany's political system of decentralization and proportional representation, Sweden and the welfare state. Uh, Martin, what countries today are getting it right? And are they just lucky because of history, geography, values, or are there some big lessons from other countries that you think we should be learning? Great, let's use that as a pivot into our mezzanine answers. Which country do you want <laughs> to copy? Um, so my answers to that, I've never really believed that there were countries that are models, um, a country, uh, for two reasons, pretty obvious. Uh, one is, um, I learned this at the World Bank in my early years, is that what a country can do depends on its own history more than whatever it can do by borrowing from others. Though it obviously is easier to borrow from countries that are roughly like yours than countries that are completely alien. So whether you thought Japan was the answer to everything or not, I knew enough about Japan, I spent a bit of time there, to know that the, the, the plausibility of a program of copying Japan was zero. So that's the first point. Uh, and the second is that I generally think there are things you can learn from people, which isn't a whole system. So uh, I do think there are some things that Germany has done institutionally in developing, though it may now his historically be irrelevant, it now, may now be irrelevant because of the first reason, in developing and promoting uh, their form of industrial progress. There were things we could have learnt from that. Uh, I think there are things we can learn from the US in their own innovation policies, some of which have been quite successful. Uh, the, uh, there are aspects of our welfare system which could certainly be improved by looking at what some of the continental Europeans are doing. But I don't believe there are models. Uh, but there are things one can learn in specific aspects and one should always be open to learning those things and realising that what you're doing actually doesn't work. Let's just put up the first poll, an only poll we're going to do tonight. Then we can give her, her, our, us her answer and pick a country if you've got a good country yeah. as well. The, um, so basically, Martin's giving you his diagnosis. What do you think is actually the biggest problem? So we're on fat tail risks here. Bad stuff. The big bad stuff that can happen is basically our subject tonight. We have to choose one. You have to choose one, Martin, because life involves choices. So economic collapse, economic failure, kind of more of what we've been doing. Democratic decline. Martin's like tail risks on that side from today. Actually, forget all of this. It's the big geopolitics, war, different groups, or... All of you are old-fashioned. Stop referring to the 1930s. It's climate. It's a new world. That's the big problem. Or something else entirely. But just so you know, if you tick something else entirely, we're just discarding But I'm into polycrisis. I think all of them. I know, but it says, it says which is the biggest risk. But so, over to you. Can I, can I just pick up on um, Peter? They're interconnected, exactly. I'd like to pick up on Peter go, Kellner's go. question about other countries and, and agree with Martin that we can learn 
specific things from, from countries. And the problem with looking for one country that gets everything right is no matter what country you choose, somebody will find something wrong with it and say that that demolishes the argument for learning the one thing you thought you should learn. What I observe um, in the School of Government, where we have students from some you know, 80 different countries, is how difficult it is for people to believe that they can learn from other countries. And then when they do, how difficult it is for Brits, for example, to believe that they can learn from countries other than America and the white commonwealth, or perhaps from Europe. So let me give you a couple of examples. You know, Kenya, partly funded by Britain's development agency, launched Impesa, the Impesa. digital currency, right? Which got quite a lot of unbanked Kenyans into the system. Now, Britain had a huge underbanked problem at the time, but did it introduce digital banking for itself? Sorry, not digital currency, digital banking for, for itself. At the same time, no, you know, another India, the you know, when we talk about the identity system, Adhar yeah. in India, a system where you use digital identities, not in some untrammeled way across all agencies of the government so that it becomes a surveillance state, but with huge protections so that it can actually begin to deliver to other citizens. Um, I have found it really difficult to persuade people from countries that colonized others that sometimes they can learn things from countries that are leapfrogging them. Um, and I, I think we need to be open to that. I that agree completely. Right, let's pick up the results of the poll and then I'm gonna take a question from Jonathan if we can move the mic over here. So what are you all going for? Look, look how, look at, we've got a very woke audience here. So climate is top. They're, and then demo, they're basically with you on democratic decline. See, I have economic failure higher as like an imminent risk, but you know, turns out democracy is an important thing and you've all voted for something. Bad people are concerned, that's the beginning. That is the beginning. We didn't really give them any choice not to be concerned. By the way, no, like, may, I, may I add one facetious answer? The country, country, Peter, that we should definitely not think can be a credible model for us is Singapore. Okay, we know where that's going, right. Jonathan. Jonathan Haskell, do we understand, Martin, when people become disillusioned in the way you describe it in the book, why they turn more to the right instead of turning to the left? Mm. Thanks very much. Great question. Great question. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful question, and there are lot, there's lots of political stuff on this, and I don't think there is a completely clear answer, but this is how I have come to think about it, um, which is that the, the centre-left as a force, you mentioned Blair, didn't you? Yep. Uh, became remarkably identified with the consensus political system which people really embraced it. I mean, this is true in all, among the Democrats, all the major parties. So the centre-left came to be seen by many of its potential supporters, because what they lost was the working class, uh, as they're them. They're not us anymore. And that, I think, which I do discuss, is related to this utterly profound and little understood transformation of the social and therefore moral base of left-wing parties, which is, I'm going to put this your all, it's their parties of university graduates. And one thing all university graduates, alas, seem to share is a contempt for people who aren't. And the people who aren't know this and recognize it. And the conservatives, are, the center-right, broadly speaking, are very good at identifying that and exploiting it. So that's my one part. The other half of it is 
that um, when people are in trouble, you can offer them one of two things, hope or fear. And I think to offer hope, you need to be seriously credible. And fear just works better. However, however, uh, the hero of my book, this is obvious both politically and, and because of my biggest market, is Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And he is clearly the most important democratic politician of the 20th century. I don't think the slightest doubt about that. And for all his failures. And he did just that. Uh, it was partly because, thank God, the Great Depression happened while the Republicans were in power. And the, so they couldn't really disassociate with themselves. But it shows, I think, that a bold, decisive, brilliant, uh, 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 reforming uh, figure of the left can do it if such a person exists, but it does obviously require some quite exceptional talent. So to put it, now I, this is my views on politics are completely worthless, because um, I mean, certainly what you should do to win elections. But if I were advising Mr. Starmer, I would tell him, have a go, for God's sake. You might win power, but it won't be power this way. And look at FDR. He sort of trains the world. Um, but yes, it okay. can be done, it has been done, but it seems to be much easier to go for the politicians of hate. I thought you were going to say your advice, advice to Starmer was be brilliant. But no, no just, just be brave. Have a go. Right. Uh, the, remember that the famous description of FDR was first-rate temperament, second-rate intellect. Oh, Does he prefer it that way around? Oh, yes. In a right. leader, intellect is completely... Uh, intellect is ten a penny. Right. Uh, leadership sad, is really rare. Right. Now, that's definitely true. <laughs> but, right, let's do two last questions and then release everyone to their evening. So... You are basically a radical incrementalist, and when you get angry, some of the anger is with people who want really radical change. So every event I do around the country at the moment, you're obviously describing some of the hole we're in, showing some of the similar charts to what you're doing, and someone will always put their hand up and say, which is a bit actually slightly what you're saying with Keir Starmer now, they will say, so this means something really radical must be done, full stop. There's no like, is it a right thing, wrong thing? It's just like something, it's a really big problem. So we must do something really big and radical, revolution, utopianism. Uh, whereas you're making an argument, which obviously I'm partial to, but is basically we need radical incrementalism, by which I don't think you say that, but it basically is that, which is you need to have a, we want big change, but we're going to deliver it via purposeful focus on lots of small changes. Well, my view is, that successful, part of my book has a history of the evolution of democratic capitalism, shows how both changed. And over the one and a half centuries with ups and downs, there's been an enormous amount of reform. There's, and there clearly needs an enormous amount of reform now. Uh, and it's been successful, then it fails. It's clearly we're in trouble, so we're going to have to do it again. Over the same period, there have been quite a few attempts, starting with the French Revolution itself, um, the, the first of these events, to completely transform a society from top to bottom, from a corrupt, awful society and into a utopia overnight. And my view is, I don't think it's terribly controversial, this hasn't gone well. 
And, and there are reasons why it hasn't gone well, which are actually discussed very well by uh, Edmund Burke in his discussion of the revolution in France. And they have, it's been endlessly repeated. So I really, so I really don't think that that tradition can have much uh, pers persuasive power or legitimacy after all those ghastly experiments. The quote in the book is... But it can be quite radical. Okay, so quite quite radical incrementalism. Yeah, right? I mean, great, creating the NHS was quite radical. Whether it was the optimal thing, it can be discussed. The welfare state created in Britain after the war was pretty radical. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, all these sorts of things. But it didn't involve completely destroying all the institutional um, basis, legal system, and all the rest of it of the country, and saying, we're the government, we can do whatever we like, and if you don't like it, we'll put you in prison. Because we don't want that. The, um, right, last question, because then we do need to wrap up. Yeah, which indeed. Is, so you read the book, and then you step back and you think, who is Martin uh, Wolf once you've got past the Depression? And then I think I come away thinking, Martin Wolf is a... Burkean, that's what we just discussed, right? Mm. Don't do anything totally nuts. Uh, social Democrat. And that is not what people would have thought about Martin Wolf in 1990. But underlying it, you, you, you've gone basically quite lefty. So another way of putting it, it's my Tony Blair point, which is, so Tony Blair is triangulating, he has, a, he has his third way. You're kind of like Tony Blair, but much more scared that if you don't do enough lefty stuff, the people are gonna go nuts. Well, I perfectly prepare. I started off as uh, Gates Collide, which is social dem democracy, yep. Swedish style. I've always regarded Targa Erlander as a, an incredibly important figure in, uh, in European political history. And what he pulled off, which was actually creating a very successful um, um, welfare state within a very successful capitalist system in which, for God's sake, the Wallenbergs are mo the most powerful capitalists. Um, 19th century capitalism would still survive. That was pretty successful. So I'm very happy to say that. But as I've also said to you, I'm also completely happy with the social market tradition of uh, um, our heart and the, the Christian Democrats. That's a these are central traditions, which I within which I think reasonable people can perfectly disagree and change your minds. And over my lifetime, the things that I've emphasized have altered. Um, if I'm you're if you're engaged in thinking and writing about these things for half a century, and what you think doesn't change, would, it would seem very strange to me. But basically, you're right. I'm more or less back where I started. Which, so, is, which is a good way for us to uh, and, all and of us end up where we start. My, my, my father, now long dead, would I think be very happy and very amused. Very good. <laughs> that, well, that's great. Uh, look, thank you all for your time tonight. Can we thank Martin and thank Neri for their thoughts? Um, you've all got to go out now and save democracy and capitalism. Mm -hmm. And Martin's got to go and flog the book. Go upstairs, £5 discount. You can buy it, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. We'll see you at a Resolution Foundation event soon. Thank you for listening to this Resolution Foundation event. You can find more episodes and the latest living standards research on the Resolution Foundation website.